Hello, I'm Tommy Peeler, and welcome to Carefully Examining the Text. And in today's podcast, we want to look at Psalm 16. A friend of mine recently told me he was enjoying the podcast, but he says, you need some bumper music. I do not deny that fact. But if you understood my technological abilities, you would know what a miracle this podcast is to begin with. And I've decided just not to push the envelope too much. But in Psalm 16, let's look at these words. This is described as a mitum of David. And that particular term in the title, a mictum, is a transliteration of the Hebrew. It also appears in Psalms 56 through 60. Psalms 56 through 60. In the Greek translation, uh, the word inscription was used. But in the psalm, let's look at the first seven verses right now. Preserve me, O God. For I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good beside you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who bartered for another will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor shall I take their name upon my lips. The Lord is my portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. Now, looking at these texts, the the call is for God to preserve David. Preserve me. Keep me, he states in verse 1. This Hebrew word that is used here is used six times in Psalm 121. But he's calling upon the Lord to preserve him, to keep him, because he has made the Lord his refuge. A common idea in the Psalms. To take refuge in God means to trust in God, to live in dependence upon him rather than upon oneself. That's the idea of taking refuge in God. It appeared in 2.12 and 5.11, 7.1 and in 11.1, just in Psalms that we have discussed so far. And he acknowledges in verse 2, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. You are my Lord. Maybe the psalmist confession of his loyalty to God is a contrast to those who are around him, who surround him, who do not share that confession. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. And he acknowledges that God is the source of every good thing. 
The Bible tells us in Psalm 84, in verse 11, that the Lord is the source of all the good things. Nothing good will he withhold from his servants. The same kind of idea appears in Psalm 34 and verse 10. In Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, the Lord himself is our ultimate good. He is our ultimate good. And so the text emphasizes, I have no good besides you. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, James 1 and verse 17. God is the source of all of our good. In verse 3, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is my delight. There are passages in the Psalms where the saints has reference to the angels. It seems as if the word is used this way in Psalm 89 in verse 5 and Psalm 89 in verse 7. There are other times that the word has reference to all God's people. And you see used this way in Psalm 34 and verse 9. But the text tells us here that these saints, these majestic ones, are the ones in whom is my delight. Now, I, I don't think in this context it makes the most sense to apply this phrase to angels. But it makes more sense to apply this phrase to his fellow man. And I think Psalm 16 verse 3 in a way is illustrating what Psalm 15 verse 4 said. When Psalm 15 verse 4 talked about the one who would abide in God's tent, who would dwell on God's holy hill, it talked about him as one in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. In the latter part of what we just read from Psalm 15, 4, he honors those who fear the Lord is stated here in verse 3. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is my delight. He delights in, he honors those who fear the Lord. He rejoices in them. But in contrast to verse 3, where, God, where, where the servant of God, where David delights in the one who, who fears the Lord, in verse 4, the Bible talks about the sorrows of those who have bartered for another. And the New American Standard has the word another God. Now, one of the things you notice in your translation, if you're looking at the New American Standard, that word God is in italics, indicating that it's not in the original. Now, usually in the Old Testament, when the Bible speaks of another God, both of those words are used. The word another, the word God is used. There are a couple of instances where the phrase another is used, where obviously God is implied, but not specifically stated. You see that, for example, in Isaiah 42 and verse 8. Is the word God implied here in verse 
4, where he talks about those who follow other gods, those who seek them will only find their troubles multiplied. And he affirms, I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor shall I take their names upon my lips. By the whole verse, I think it makes sense that this word God, uh, though it is not specifically stated in the context, is true in the idea. The idea is true that he is contrasting those who make the Lord their Lord with those who serve another God. But David said, I will not take their name upon my lips. Uh, Exodus 23, 13 Hosea 2.17 has similar ideas, and he will not pour out their drink offerings of blood. In Psalm 106, verses 36 through 38, drink offerings of blood may indicate the blood of innocent children that have been sacrificed. Uh, Is that indicated here? It may be, it may not be, it may simply be these sacrifices are abominable because they are offered to the wrong one. They are offered to another God. Our loyalty is to the true God. It's not enough to believe or trust. We have to put it in the right one, in the right source. The writer says, David says, the Lord is my portion, my inheritance, my cup, my lot. Look at all the terms used. My portion, my inheritance, my cup, and my lot. And then in verse 6, he uses the term my heritage. My heritage uh, has fallen, and my heritage is beautiful to me. All of these words, these words like portion, lot, boundary line, inheritance, are are all things we associate with the distribution of the land to the various tribes of, of Israel, the distribution of the land of Canaan to the various tribes of God's people. And you remember that the tribe of Levi didn't have a particular land allotment because the Lord was their inheritance. What was true of the Levites in particular in uh, the book of Joshua is true of all God's people, that the Lord is our portion, our inheritance. It's interesting that sometimes God's people are said to be the Lord's portion. Deuteronomy 32, verse 9, but He is our portion as well. When he says the heritage is beautiful to me, he is not rejoicing in real estate, but he is rejoicing in the God who is the source of every good thing that he has. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places, and indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. 
In verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. The Lord is our portion. He is our inheritance. He is our counselor. In verses 8 through 11, let us read again. I have set the Lord before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. In Psalm 17, in verse 7, the Bible says, uh, O Savior of those who take refuge, at your right hand. So there he spoke of trusting in the Lord's right hand. Here he said, the Lord is at my right hand. And because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Just like the man of Psalm 15 verse 5, if he does the type of things and lives the kind of life, that Psalm 15 calls us to, he will not be shaken. So it is here. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And his heart is glad. His glory rejoices. His flesh dwells securely. And the word for dwells in 16 verse 9 is the same word for dwells in 15 verse 1. Who may dwell on your holy hill. Now he dwells in security because he trusts God. In verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will not abandon me. In Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Hebrew word translated forsaken in 22.1 is the same word translated abandon here. But it's stated, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You make me know the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So again, here's a reference to God's right hand in 1611, just like we had in 177, while you have a reference in verse 8 to the psalmist David's right hand. He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. And then in verse 11, in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, this psalm is quoted in the New Testament and applied 
to Jesus. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. You do notice that this psalm uses much first-person singular language. The term me is used four times, I counted. The term my, I is used uh, seven times, and the term my is used 11 times. I, me, my. David seems to speak in first person of his personal experiences. But as he talked about the Lord not abandoning him to Sheol, he may have been describing some deliverance from a near death experience. That may be what he is describing, but it is not the full meaning of that particular psalm. There is a meaning deeper and richer than this, than David's deliverance from death, because David eventually does die, according to 1 Kings chapter 2. And verse 12, he does die and his body does see corruption. And so this psalm has to have a greater fulfillment than this. In Acts chapter 2, Peter was preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus died and was buried. But God raised him up again because it was impossible for him to be held in the power of death. And in order to justify his claim that Jesus has been raised, or in order to convince the crowd, he appealed to this psalm. In Acts 2, verses 25 through 28, Peter quotes from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. For David said, I saw the Lord always in my presence. He is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He says, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. While Psalm 16 may have had some kind of preliminary experience, or some kind of preliminary fulfillment in, the, in, a, in David's deliverance from a near-death experience, that wasn't the ultimate fulfillment. For David died and was buried, and his tomb had been with them for a thousand years by the time that Peter was speaking. In other words, his body did see corruption, but the one that he speaks of would not undergo decay 
Peter says this has fulfillment in Jesus who did not undergo decay but was raised from the dead the third day. Now, in order to make this argument, Peter seems to be emphasizing that first, this psalm was written by David. And second, we know that David was anointed of God. Third, that God had promised eternal, uh, an eternal dynasty to David and to his descendants. And fourth, that these things spoken of, the, of in the Psalms are fulfilled in David and the experience of the Messiah. Since they haven't been fulfilled in the career of David, who died and was buried, and his tomb remains with us, they are fulfilled in Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. Peter, Paul makes the same point in Acts 13. In verse 35 of Acts 13, therefore he says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid among his fathers, and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. It's Acts 13, 35 through 37. You notice he quotes Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That's not fulfilled in David, Paul said, just like Peter did in Acts 2. Paul says here, David did fall asleep. He did undergo decay. But the he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Jesus was raised. And ultimately, these words of Psalm 16 don't have their greatest fulfillment in David's experiences, but they foreshadow, they prophesy of the experiences of the Messiah who would be raised from the dead, who would overcome death, and through whom we have hope of eternal life. I recognize that death looms over all of human existence, and it greatly affects the behavior of all mankind to some degree, some to a great degree. What is our hope? Ultimately, that is a battle that we will all lose. I would encourage you to put your hope in the one who did not undergo decay. Put your hope in the one who was raised from the dead. Let us stand in awe of Jesus and give ourselves in service to him. May the Lord bless you and keep you.